Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. Three and a half years ago, we talked to a psychiatrist at the Portland VA and Oregon Health and Science University. He was working to spread awareness of something known as hikikomori. That is an extreme form of social isolation first recognized in Japan in the 1990s. We talked just a few months before the COVID-19 pandemic shut down nearly all of public life all over the world. Now, that researcher, Alan Teo, has developed a new evaluation tool to help providers diagnose hikikomori. He joins us once again. Alan Teo, it's good to have you back. Likewise, thanks to thanks to join you. Can you remind us what hikikomori is? Yeah, hikikomori is a form of social isolation or severe social withdrawal, um, and the core defining feature of it is is physically isolating yourself in your home. Um, and it's not doing that just for, I mean, as you alluded to with COVID, we remember lockdown, um, but this is a sort of extended period and, and six months is the uh, threshold that we use to kind of define this sustained isolation in one's home. How is this different from agoraphobia or extreme anxiety? It's absolutely true that you know, psychiatric, um, a number of psychiatric disorders have uh, isolation as sort of one of the symptoms. Um, but the, the difference is really that the isolation in one's home, um, the distress, and, you know, emotional distress from that isolation, that that is really the defining core feature. So in other words, other conditions we see, you know, my patients with depression or my patients with um, post-traumatic stress disorder, they have isolation as a feature, but it's usually a, a side feature to the condition, not the central piece to it. Hmm. This condition, as I noted, was first recognized in Japan in young people. Is there an age component to this that researchers have identified more recently? Yeah, there is absolutely an age component in the sense that we usually see it first detected. It, it first sort of appears or the onset of the condition um, is often in adolescence um, or young adulthood. And, you know, and some of that really may have to do with our, you know, our social development as humans. Um, that is a period, you know, social lives are important at all phases of our life, but it's really challenging, really particularly challenging um, for folks that are sort of in that adolescent and young adult period. Hmm. We talked uh, right after you'd published a new simplified definition of hikikomori a few years ago. Have you seen more providers or patients recognizing this condition in the years that have followed? Yeah, absolutely. There's, I think, more uh, awareness and identification um, of this condition. You know, one one example is we, you know, helped, I helped um, write and publish a, a screening tool 
like a, a scale that can be, you know, taken by you or me or anyone. Um, and so I've seen, you know, that I've put that publicly available, available on my website as an example. And we saw a big trend in um, sort of more downloads and use of that. Um, and the other thing, and I, I'm really heartened by this other thing, is I'm getting more um, more and more contacted by uh, psychologists, clinicians, other people really from all over the world. Um, and so these are individuals that are trying to understand hikikomori or hikikomori-like conditions in their own community. I mean, literally, um, you know, from from not just Tokyo, but all the way across to Turkey. We're, we're just seeing it really all over the globe. So I'm, I'm heartened that people are looking into this in their own communities. Hmm. Anecdotally, it was super clear that the pandemic was a period of extreme and ongoing social isolation for people all over the world. Um, but in a lot of ways, we were talking about physical isolation. What's the the important distinction here when it comes to hikikomori? Yeah, so there's the you know, feature. So when we think about conditions that have a mental health component, I think we, I often think about the behavioral component to it, um, as well as the emotional and psychological component. And so hikikomori, you know, does have, have both of those features. Um, the, the withdrawal into one's home. I mean, that is literally, that is the behavior. It's a, you know, some might call it a defense mechanism of kind of withdrawing into one's home. But there's clearly, surely a lot of emotional, um, problems that are sort of, um, tied in with it. Um, and there, you know, I have to also add in the, the social components too. So for example, we often see that, you know, this may begin with a lot of difficulty in school, dropping out of school, having, um, challenges in a person's social environment and then that that sort of behavior of withdrawing occurs and the emotional distress um the uh, mood problems things that are layered all layered on top of it hmm. so let's turn to the recent announcement the, the diagnostic tool that was recently published what is it yeah i mean this is quite simply a, st a sort of structured interview form and it's really designed to help professionals um, you know clinicians other people that are in in healthcare evaluate and assess um, their patients so if they're thinking that there there's um, suspicion there's concern that a patient might have hikikomori this is meant to be a, a tool to help them it's meant to be something that be, can can be used consistently um, uh, across different settings. You know, as we were talking about earlier, Dave, people are studying this now all over the globe. And so one thing that I, I, um, think is important is to make sure we're talking about apples to apples. Um, and so if you have a interview form and interview questions that allow the same type of um, you know, que queries, whether, whether you're a psychologist, um, in, in Russia or a psychologist, um, here in Oregon, you know, that consistency is really, really important and helpful. What are some of those questions? Yeah. So one, one thing we ask about is just the frequency of going out. How often do you go outside? Um, how often in a week would you go outside and for how long? Um, because we've seen in, and again, in some of the origins uh, of this research in Japan that you know, some individuals would, would count going out to the mailbox as, as getting out of the 
house. And so as we've as we've learned more about this condition, we've we've kind of determined we need to ask about again, we need to really dig deep and find out how often people are going out in what ways, um, in addition to sort of how chronic and and how consistent does this ebb and flow, um, or is it a persistent problem? Um, these are all the types of questions that we include in this sort of rating process. How different are some of these questions from what clinicians might already ask if they were trying to get at something like depression. Yeah, it, uh, it, if we're talking about something like depression, it is, um, it is different because quite frankly, the um, you know, clinical diagnoses like major depression are really based on different criteria. So, for example, if we're talking about depression, it, we would, you know, I'd be talking to my patients, asking them about um, how how low their mood is, um, whether they're having trouble enjoying themselves. So, again, these things can relate, but they're definitely different questions that we're asking. And I think because the, the heart of the behavior here that you want to zero in on is is not leaving your home. Correct, and then the, the the extent to which that is is leading to major problems in your life. Exactly, and so we want to detect. I would I would say that again, this is not a tool to be used um, unto itself or alone. In other words, if after establishing someone has hikikomori, we also want to do sort of a full psychological assessment. So, for example, if there is depression that's co-occurring, that's super helpful information um, to sort of guide guide treatment. But the reality is we, we haven't, in psychiatry, we have lots of interview tools, but social withdrawal has really been given scant consideration. We um, People are aware of it, but there haven't been sort of structured tools to look at it. So to hmm. me, it seems like a no-brainer to, to develop something like this. You've pointed out that until there was an agreed upon diagnosis. And I mean, for example, for your example, different clinicians in different countries asking the same kinds of questions until you had that and, and until you had an established evaluation tool, you couldn't move on to exploring treatment in a rigorous way, in an apples to apples way. But now here you are. So what are your strategies for studying treatment? Yeah, this is a brick by brick um, process, Dave. So the for studying treatment, um, for, there just haven't been studies. Uh, there have only been a, a one or two studies on treatment. So the process for studying treatment is assemble, you know, can we assemble in a research study patients that meet the same definition, a consistent definition? Can they undergo a, a professional, again, diagnosis? And then can we compare how people do um, to, you know, receiving one treatment versus receiving, not receiving it, you're receiving a, a placebo or or an alternative treatment. Um, but until you have, until you know that you have people that meet the, the definition, until you can follow them, um, we really, you know, follow them and see how they do, um, do over time with treatment. We just don't know what works, what doesn't work. It seems like one of the challenges that you and others could run into is just the hidden aspect of this. I mean, if, if by definition, um, the people that you want to help are self-isolating, they're at home, how are you going to find them to help them? Yeah, one of the t 
typically the first mm, sort of point of outreach is a family member. Um, and we do know in mental health, it's incredibly, it can be incredibly helpful to educate and do more than educate, but really empower family members. So, you know, how we, how I communicate with, you know, my, my daughter or my wife in my home, these things have a, a direct impact on our mental health. So engaging loved ones, family members, helping them learn how to connect um, and and help their, you know, uh, their family member who might be suffering from this. Um, these are helpful tools to sort of indirectly supporting uh, the treatment. What options are there? I mean, we're talking about future work to have kind of rigorous research into treatment, but, but we also talked about the fact that this was first identified uh, in Japan, you know, more than three decades ago. Are there any treatment options that seem to have worked already? Yes, there. I I can't. Um, I can't give sort of a two thumbs up uh, to any. I can say that again. You know, things that are being that have been used in regular practice, routine practice in Japan, include things like um, uh, support centers where. Again, affected individuals or family members can come in for consultation. It includes like re, um, what we call vocational rehabilitation. So that's uh, providing training in work skills um, that would allow them to uh, engage in their their community. Other things like visiting, you know, even um, home visitation um, programs. So um, there was just a piece published by um, a journalist in, in Canada that I interacted with who was sort of studying this sort of home visitation approach. So a lot of approaches out there. And I do think the last thing I'll say is I think we can learn from community members. We can learn from what practitioners um, and providers are doing. And so um, that's one of my interests going forward is sort of developing a community of practice where we under where we look at what are people testing on the ground what are they learning um so we need research studies sort of the rigorous research studies that that i try and work on but we also need this sort of community of practitioners sharing in their 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 experience you know we've been talking about um an extreme form of social isolation but one of the th themes that's just come up here and there in a number of conversations we've had on this show just in recent weeks is um, the, a, a kind of lower level of isolation that might that probably would not rise to the level of what you're talking about clinically, but still could be damaging to individuals and to society. I, I'm just wondering how much you think about those lower levels, but but still serious versions of an in maybe increasingly isolated public. I think about it all all the time, Dave. Um, I, you know, hikikomori is one piece that I study, but I'm very um, devoted to trying to work on things like loneliness, you know, which may be lower grade, but it deteriorates our health. I mean, we know there is there is abundant data on the fact that um, that feeling of isolation, that loneliness at a lower grade, again, it it really sort of eats eats at us. Um, it's it's a social pain, and so we do know that that has health effects. And we are trying, many of us are trying to address making people more socially connected and understanding that more social connection is good for our health. I mean, it's good for our happiness, but it's also good for our health. Alan Teo, thanks for your time. Again, I appreciate it. Thank you.
Alan Teo is an associate professor of psychiatry at Oregon Health and Science University. So much of what we talk about on this show has to do with what's happening right now. But there's a lot of history behind these conversations. OPB's Salmon Wars podcast will give you insights into some of that history. It tells the story of one Yakima Nation family that's been fighting for salmon in the Columbia River across generations. Find Salmon Wars wherever you listen to podcasts.